tons of people love Ted Lasso. And the same kind of person that loves Ted Lasso is looking for this kind of escapist book and is looking mm-hmm. for this kind of sports story and is looking for this kind of team story. That's what I did with mine. I sort of gave them the real comp that they can plug in and this audience-defining comp. And I think in this era where there's peak TV, there's so much TV on, there's so many shows that kind of become buzzy and zeitgeisty, it's a shortcut for explaining to editor, the publisher, who the audience is. Welcome back to Lit Match, a show made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for your writing career. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified editor, passionate about helping you with the writing and submission process. In today's episode, I had the privilege and pleasure of talking with another one of the amazing co-founders of Trellis Literary Management, Allison Hunter. Although all the agents at Trellis Literary Management specialize in fiction, Allison is the most commercial fiction-focused agent, which she shares in our conversation today, along with everything on her manuscript wish list and tons of great advice for writers, including popular topics like how to think about comparable titles and what makes a great beat read. Allison Hunter began her publishing career in 2005, working for the Los Angeles-based literary publicity firm, Kim from LA. She also was an agent at Inkwell Management, the Stuart Krajewski Literary Agency, and Jinklo and Nesbitt, all before co-founding Trellis Literary Management in the fall of 2021. Allison and her co-founders' goals for Trellis is always to establish a more collaborative boutique approach to client representation. Allison is actively acquiring commercial adult fiction as well as literary fiction, and she especially focuses on upmarket book club and women's fiction, rom-coms, thrillers, and domestic suspense. She loves great storytelling and unforgettable characters and is always looking for female friendship stories, campus novels, great love stories, family epics, and books about class and culture identity. She would especially love to find a smart beach read by any author underrepresented in that category. In the nonfiction space, Allison is acquiring select memoir, narrative nonfiction, and the occasional prescriptive project. She loves working with journalists and with experts in their field, and is always looking for pop culture, women's issues, and for books that speak to the current cultural climate. You can learn more about Allison and her favorite authors in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Allison, thank you so much for coming on LitMitch. I am thrilled to have you. Previously, I did an episode with Michelle. And if you have heard that episode with Michelle, it's wonderful. If you haven't, go listen to it. Allison is another wonderful agent at Trellis Literary Management, which is this amazing literary agency that was co-founded by three fantastic women in agenting. And I'm so excited to now get to talk to another one of them in Allison Hunter. So thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to get into the conversation today. Thank you so much. Yes, I heard Michelle's fantastic interview and was super jealous and wanted to share my story. So I'm so happy to be here to do that. Well, we want to hear your story. Definitely excited and open to that. Why don't we go ahead and start with that? I'd love to hear about your experience and getting into agenting. What did that path look like and what were some lessons that you took out of it? Yeah, that's a great question. My path was a little more slightly unusual, uh, different from other people's in that I was older when I started in agenting than most people are. I would say the 
vast majority of agents start as an intern or an assistant uh, a few years out of college, you know, in their 20s. And I had this kind of more meandering path where I actually was an intern back when interns were unpaid for a couple of agents in 2004, which was pretty soon after I graduated from, from school. But then I ended up moving back to California, where I'm from. I worked for a freelance book publicist for several years. I then went to law school, thought I wanted to be a lawyer, realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. And by the time I kind of came back to New York and came back to agenting and kind of restarted my agenting career as an assistant, I was almost 30. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, that was, that was, I was older than, than most of my peers. But I think that the experience I had in those, those years in between really helped me focus on what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And my first, my first sort of real agenting job was at Inkwell Management, which is a wonderful agency in New York. I was an assistant. I answered phones. I did scheduling. I paid bills. Again, I was, I was about to turn 30, but I also learned a ton and I realized very quickly that I needed to have that kind of apprenticeship in order to do the job. You know, just mm -hmm. because I had had some experience and I had a law degree did not mean that I could just kind of skip that important step of working mm -hmm. under an agent. I'm really glad I did that. I also, of course, read a ton for for my boss, Kim Weatherspoon, and learned a ton from her. She was an incredible mentor and was able to start signing clients on my own and selling books pretty soon after starting. And I think, I don't know if I would have had the the courage to really go after that if it hadn't been for those those lost years, if you yeah, know. I get that. No regrets. Yeah. And I've had other conversations with agents and have just talked about the great importance of mentorship in this industry and how really your path has to be paved at first, like with your first mentor, right? Or, you know, several mentors. I feel like there's constantly this relationships is so important in publishing in general, right? And it's so cool, you know, you have this background of being a lawyer, or, you know, think about that you're going to be a lawyer because negotiating contracts, I'm sure those skills come, in, come into play when you're negotiating, but also having that hands-on experience. It's interesting that you go to age and of course, you know, 30 is, is not, you know, an old age in life, but it's so interesting to say that that might be older getting into the industry. And it makes me think about, I've had a lot of writers who have come to me before and they're always concerned about their age. Am I too old to publish? I get that question all the time. What do you think about that question? We've seen some really great examples in the last few years of authors who have published their debut novels later in life. The book Lessons in Chemistry, Bonnie Garmis, which came out a few months ago. I don't want to say her age because I'm sure I would get it wrong, but she's certainly not, you know, in her 20s or 30s, let's put it that way. And a few years ago... It was a nest by Cynthia Sweeney. You know, she was she was a bit older when she published that book, and that was a huge hit. As was Lessons of Chemistry. So I think absolutely it's a fiction that you have to be young. If anything, I think being older means you have more life experience to write about. Mm -hmm. But I do think that editors love the idea. Agents and editors both love the idea of building an author's career over many many years. I think that's where the myth comes from that you have to be young. You absolutely don't. But I think everyone wants to know that you've got a couple more left in you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's a big reason why finding the right agent for you is so important, right? You don't want to just sign 
with any agent, you want to sign with the agent that shares your career vision. How do you help authors discover what their career vision is and support them throughout a career? Yeah, I mean, that is sort of the best and hardest part of the job, I think, because it's not just about one manuscript. It really is about the bigger picture. And I have to give my my business partner, Michelle, credit for that. She is better at that kind of long-term career management than just about anyone I know. I learned from her in a lot of ways, but I think that it's really kind of making sure that the author knows what kind of author he or she wants to be, which sounds very obvious, but in this business, authors are constantly comped to each other. That's sort of a big way we place books and authors in the market as we say, okay, this is a you know, a, an American Sally Rooney, or this is a female John Grisham, or this is a Tom Wolf for a new generation or something like that. And so I think it's an agent's job to have really honest conversations with authors about how they want to be comped and how they might be comped and how they should be comped and will be comped. Because if an author says to me, well, I want to be the next Casey McQuiston, I get a lot of Casey McQuiston comps because Casey McQuiston is an incredibly popular rom-com author and I do a lot of rom-coms. And and if that person then says to me, okay, but the next book I want to write is like super literary and serious and takes place, you know, it's and it's historical, I have to have, again, an honest conversation of like, well, that's going to kind of change how you're positioned and how you're comped and described. And it's not so easy to jump back and forth and pivot back. So mm-hmm. I think it's really be thinking about what is the model? I always ask authors that, you know, whose career do you want to emulate? And figuring out how to kind of position them properly. That's a great concentration. Why do you think it is so difficult to jump around genres as an author? I think that the readers are very sort of single focused and they have expectations. Once you're successful, it's sort of a catch-22. Like once you're successful in a genre, your readers want the same from you mm-hmm. and the same types of things from you. And it can be hard to then pivot because you're basically like they're not getting what they signed up for when they bought the book. I think it can be frustrating for authors, honestly. I get the question a lot of like, oh, I want to do YA, I want to do historical, I want to do rom-coms. And I certainly don't want to say you can't because you can. There are all kinds of ways to do it. And some authors write under different names. They write one kind of book under one name and one kind of book under another name. But I do think that it's part of that long-term career management that we were talking about and part of the branding is sort of figuring out, again, who is your reader? What do they want from you? What else are they reading? How are we going to position you in the eye of your publisher and booksellers and eventual book buyers? They know kind of what to expect to kind of get. Yeah, that's great. I want to talk about manuscript wishlist first. So reminds me if we don't jump to this right afterwards. But part of because I know it's on your manuscript wishlist. I think discovering that idea when you, you've talked about market and you've talked about target readers and finding this way to position yourself. And I think it would be interesting to explore how you start to define what your target reader is through the genre that you're you know, flagged as this type of author, this is the type of genre that you're writing, and how that can help you start to think about building platform, as well as what are some main things that maybe target readers look for in a specific genre. To do that, let's first talk about your manuscript wishlist and then zero in on the specific genres that you like to work with. 
Let me back up for a second and say that at Trellis, we cover a lot. We are at our current roster of agents is more fiction focused than nonfiction. Okay. But I do do some nonfiction and also right there, I do a little bit of memoir, although not a lot. I do some sort of pop culture, smart pop culture, I call it. I represent the author Anne Helen Peterson, who has written a bunch of books about culture and millennial burnout and remote work and stuff like that. She's just the smartest person about the intersection of, I would say, pop and, and culture, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I represent the author Kelsey Miller, who wrote a really fantastic book about Friends, the TV show, and looking back on its impact then and how it holds up. Daniel Friedman, who wrote a wonderful book about the cultural history of women in fitness and looking at sort of various exercise trends with women. So that's the kind of nonfiction that I really love. And it's a lot of women's issues. I do some parenting. I have a, you know, a hugely successful potty training book that I sold several years ago. Anything kind of female women, women focus is very mm -hmm. much my jam. Mm -hmm. On the fiction side, you know, every trellis agent represents fiction. And I am the most commercial of the trellis agents. What that means is I'm looking for everything from the very, very, very commercial, which I consider rom-coms and thrillers, romance, all kinds of romance, I should say, and thrillers, mysteries, suspense, that kind of thing. I don't do a lot of fantasy and sci-fi, every other kind of commercial genre fiction. And then all the way sort of on the spectrum to what we consider kind of upmarket book club fiction. It could be historical, it could not be historical. It can be something like the books I was mentioning earlier, Lessons of Chemistry, The Nest, those were not my books, I wish they were, but you know, books about families, books about mothers, daughters, sisters, more upmarket love stories. That's what I do. I love, love, love of all kinds. I love just anything I think that could be considered a beach read. I use that term very broadly and I think it should be applied broadly because I think any book that you enjoy on the beach is a beach read but I certainly love books set in beach setting I love campus novel one of my all-time favorite books is Curtis Sittenfeld's Prep which is just you know just such a four-minute book for me I love anything about female friendship I think is fantastic and I love kind of epic books that take place over the course of many years watching characters grow and evolve I a recent absolute favorite of mine that, again, not my book, I have nothing to do with it, is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zetman, which just mm -hmm. published and is on the cover of the book review this week. And it's just, I, I am like evangelical about this book. I think it's so, so fantastic. It's about a friendship. It starts with their children and follows them over the course of their lives. And I just absolutely loved it. Your manuscript list is basically everything that I would want to read. So <laughs> I'm really excited to dig deep in this selfishly. Also, you mentioned potty training, which I'm going to have to grab the title of because I'm currently a, just bought a potty for my toddlers. Oh, it's called oh. it's called Oprah Potty Training. And it's absolutely like the book that you need. I don't have kids, but every single one of my friends with kids has used it. Well, that's what I need. I have just bought, picked up the Minnie Mouse potty yesterday. So <laughs> now I need to go head over to Ocraps. <laughs> Oh crap. Yep. Yeah. Right. That's good. So now let's zero in on that fiction because you talked commercial, you talked upmarket book club, and you talked beach reads. And that's what I'd like to focus in on. You have this idea of commercial, upmarket, book club, and beach read. And it sounds like if you were to have an umbrella, that's this category. And then there can be tons of different genres that can fall underneath it. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. Can we talk a little bit Our about distinctions are very, you could ask different people and you get different answers. There's mm -hmm. no one definition 
Mm-hmm. Plenty of books could be considered more than one of, of those descriptions. Mm-hmm. It's really unclear necessarily what commercial versus literary is. I just want to put mm-hmm. a handle where we were asked to define the term upmarket fiction and no one came up with a good answer. So I'm going to preempt, preempt whatever question you have next and say, I may not be able to tell you what belongs in what category, but we yeah. use these categories anyway. But it sounds like when people query you, you can kind of establish a taste of what that is and then help them figure out where they fit on the bookshelves in a bookstore. Exactly. And I think comps, you know, I keep talking about comps, but that's a huge part of it is looking at what other authors that are selling well, I can make the case that this new author will appeal to the audience. That is a hugely important part of the job is, again, kind of placing that author in the current market on the current job. Let's do a case study. So looking at your clients, let's pick a commercial fiction and upmarket book club fiction and beach read client. And then can you tell us what maybe their latest book or a book that you really liked that they have published is and what the comps would be and how you went about figuring out what the comps were for that story when you go ahead and decide. So I, it hasn't published yet, but I just sold a fantastic rom-com called The Keystone Combination by an author named KT Hoffman. It is wonderful. It will be published by Dial, which is a random house imprint in 2024. KT is a trans man, and the book is about a trans man who is a professional minor league baseball player. And he has a sort of classic enemies to lovers romance with his teammate, who is gay. I pitched it as red, white, and royal blue meets lasso. Two great cops. Right. There's a side conversation to be had about how we are coping to television more and more as sort of content becomes, there's more and more television content to comp to. But I think for that book, it was so clear that, again, Casey McQuiston was such an obvious comp author for this book and that there is this growing, growing rom-com readership and they are looking for books that are, I think I, I call it like the big ceiling. You know, they want to feel, they want to cry, they want to escape sort of into the story. I think the kind of quirky, slapsticky rom-coms are, are kind of out. What I've seen now are the big feelings. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of that is pandemic related and it's sort of coming out of this period of feeling very lonely and very isolated and everyone felt their feelings during the pandemic. I think that kind of is a very solid rom-com pitch, commercial mm-hmm. pitch. And then would the rom-com go under commercial market or Again, the yeah. questions that are hard. I, I, right. I think rom-com is kind of its own category, but I would call that commercial fiction. Okay. Romance, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So my author, Hannah Bernstein, who is, I've sold, she's done, published four books. Her fourth book, which is called oh Meant to Be My, just published last month in June. And she's working on her fifth book. And that book, we are kind of consciously pushing her. With each book, I would say she's moved from a kind of classic rom-com structure, more upmarket, which means there isn't necessarily the rom-com tropes that you expect, where it's like boy meets girl, boy and girl have some kind of conflict, boy and girl come back together. Instead, I think she's gone in kind of some more unusual direction. They meant to be mine. While there is sort of romance, happy ending, there's also a great sister story. There's a great grandmother character. It just feels like it has more layers. And the book that she's writing now, her fifth book, is a wonderful story about two sisters at a lake. 
again, there is romance in it, but it's really about, it's a coming of age story, the family story. And to me, that makes that upmarket. You could also pull that a beach read, of course. All of these could be considered beach reads that you'd read it at a beach. Hannah's new novel is set on a lake, so that feels very beachy. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if I have a more classic beach read. You know, I wish I had more, frankly. Mm-hmm. I love a beach story, but I think all of these books could be considered beach reads. Let's talk about beach reads a little bit. I had read an article on Book Riot. I'm forgetting the date of what it was. It wasn't, you know, this year, but it was within the last few years. And it was talking about something about like what defines a beach read. And then it went into the question of like, sometimes there's this false misunderstanding that beach reads have to be easy reads. Basically, only people are going to those books because they're easy. And that's kind of a misconception. So could you talk to us about what makes a great beach read and what are you looking for specifically in your beach reads? Yeah, I, again, I truly believe beach read is any book that you, the reader, want to read at the beach. And so there may be people who want to read War and Peace at the beach. And if so, good for mm-hmm. them. I think a beach read has to have quite a bit of plot because it really has to sustain you. You're kind of distracted at the beach and you want to be really gripped by the book. To me, that means like great characters, great plot. It's, I think, something that sort of a literary meta novella feels like it might not grip you the same way. But again, that's not really what I do. I, I certainly don't want to imply that that couldn't be a beach read for some people. Right. It's based on personal taste, right? For me personally, I would want something a little bit more of the balance between plot and emotional, that emotional story, mainly yeah. because it's hot. And sometimes you, the sun wants you to take a nap. So, Absolutely. <laughs> so you know, like what's going to grip you a little more, right? Again, I think, you know, I think in terms of, of how easy it is, it doesn't necessarily to be easy at all. I mean, they're being very complex stories with, you know, tons of characters and take place over time, or it could be historical and you're learning about a new era that you didn't know about. A book like Pachinko, which was hugely popular a few years ago, I think could be considered a beach read, even though that is a it's got war. It's got history. It's got a lot of serious themes. A friend of mine coined the term Ivy League beach read, which is kind of like a, a smarter, more sophisticated beach read, which I think an author like Emma Straub or Cormie Sullivan, I think they kind of fall in that category. But truly, I can't emphasize how much these terms are incredibly subjective, don't have a lot of continuity. It's so interesting because you talked about, then it comes down to the idea of comps. And when you find a story that resonates with you and you know you want to represent it, and then you go on to represent it, finding the best comps for it, right? Because that can help you figure out the placements. And if someone is the type of beach read reader where it is going to be more sophisticated read, define that as you will, the term sophisticated. And then these are the ones that might just want to be easy. It's totally based off the target reader. So Zeroing in on the target reader, you mentioned earlier that you had a client who had a book that you comped as Ted Lasso meets Red, White, and Royal Blue. You had a very successful print rom-com, and then you had a TV show, and you also said that TV shows are being used more as comps. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, I'm seeing that more and more. I think that it's used as a comp in a different way. So when an agent sells a book or pitches a book to an editor... If an editor wants to buy that book, he or she has to kind of make a case for it within their publisher, within the publishing house. In order to do that, that editor fills out a P&L, a profit and loss statement, which says, I think that we can sell X number of copies of the book and therefore we should pay Y amount for the book because we'll make a profit that way. In order to come up with that X amount of how many copies they think they can sell, 
they plug in comps and say, look, you know, Casey McQuiston pulled this number of copies of Red, White, and Royal Blue. I think we can sell, you know, some similar amount or so hopefully some fraction of that number. For those comps, they have to be books. They have to be recently published books. And sometimes they have to be books published by that publisher. If it's, you know, Penguin Random House, they have to only plug in Penguin Random House titles into their own, you know. That's one use of comps. And what we try to do as agents is help the editor make the case by reminding them of those comps that they don't have to go do the legwork and figure out what to plug in. And also to make the best possible case by saying, look, I think this book is similar to this hugely best-selling book, like Red, White, and Royal Blue, that they will plug in some lower-selling comp instead. Right. But the other use of comps is to define the audience and say, listen, you can't plug Ted Lasso into your PL. Right. But tons of people love Ted Lasso. And the same kind of person that loves Ted Lasso is looking for this kind of escapist book and is looking mm-hmm. for this kind of sports story and is looking for this kind of teen story. That's what I did with mine. I sort of gave them the real comp that they can plug in and this audience-defining comp. And I think in this era where there's peak TV, there's so much TV on, there's so many shows that kind of become buzzy and zeitgeisty. It's a shortcut for explaining to the editor or the publisher who the audience is. For a while, we were seeing a million succession comps because it felt like everyone was watching succession. We decided that meant people wanted to read books about rich people, about families, about family dynasties, about that kind of thing. There have been a lot of White Lotus comps, which is, again, kind of this great escapist setting, an upstairs-downstairs situation, rich people behaving badly, perpetually fantastic topic. And I think, you know, again, it's not really a comp, not in the way that a a published book that has a a sales track record is, right? but it's a helpful tool. And correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm hearing is that if someone is querying you or you are going to market, it's important that if you are using a TV show or a film as a comp, that you need to pair it with a recent published title that is successful. I understand when readers are pitching me Sometimes they feel like there isn't an obvious book comp, but I certainly appreciate a TV or film comp as well, because again, I understand what they're saying. I understand what the audience is. I think eventually someone is going to have to come up with book comps. So as early as that work gets done, the more helpful it's going to be. I love that you brought up that rom-coms these days are going more for the big feels. And it's interesting that you use Ted Lasso because I very much do think that Ted Lasso has those big feels. Yeah, you know, you, you absolutely. Think, right? Feelings. Oh my gosh, such big feelings. Like you tie in the, the I, I love this, the dart scene where he talks about his father and then you get deeper yeah. into that. Like there's a lot of based on forgiveness and there's a lot of, there's a lot of deep rooted emotional things in season one and in season two, it deals with divorce. Like it deals with a lot of things, right? And it deals with traumas and it deals with becoming better people. So huge emotional journeys on top of what feels like a driving force of soccer. We're dealing with more like a performance story, right? We're moving towards some sort of game, but that's not what actually makes Ted Lasso Ted Lasso. Yeah. It's what moves the plot forward though. Yeah. Right. Well, How do you start to find that balance? Yeah, that's exactly my book, The Keystone Combination, my author's book. That's exactly how I described it was, yes, it has this sports story, which moves the plot forward, which is fun, which is you're really rooting for this underdog team. You really want them to make it, you know, to the playoffs. 
But ultimately, the reason the story is so compelling is the big feelings. Beautiful characters who, who have these huge emotions. And it's ultimately the story about hope. Mm-hmm. I think what my author described to me, which was incredibly moving when he talked about his own motivations for writing the book, but he said, as a trans person, you have to have hope. Yes. You have to have hope that it's going to get better, that we're going to find your sort of true, your outsides will match your insides eventually, you know? And I think that is what his journey has been, is a lot about that. And so I love that that is mirrored in his character's journey because the character is this, he's a small man and never dreams that he would ever make it as far as he did in professional baseball in this wonderful Ted Lasso-esque fictional university. He's the only trans person playing professional sport of any kind and he without getting too much of a wife he really makes it and like it's it's an incredible hero's journey yes like you said this that coming of age element to it which would go hand in hand with a hero's journey yeah i love that it's interesting because you've kind of implied this when you are going to market and you're using these comps is it important that you explain why it is related to that comp or is it self-explanatory based on the title of the comp? I think it's a pen. Yeah. I think that comps are used in all kinds of ways. So for instance, sometimes the story is quite different, but the setting is the same. Okay. And so you, you might have to explain that if it's not obvious. Sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, the gender swapped version of an old comp. So sometimes if it's not obvious why the comp is the comp, I think you do have to explain it. But I think for this book, when I describe the plot of this is a LGBT love story, trans character set in the world of sports, the Ted Lasso meets red, white, and blue felt kind of obvious. Yeah. And if it's in, if it's a writer querying you, do they just list the comps or do they explain the comps? You know, I, I can't speak for all agents, but for me, I welcome an explanation. I, okay. I always welcome hearing how an author sees him or herself in the market. The best thing an author can do, no matter what they're writing, is to fully understand the market as much as they can, to read everything in their category and doing that not so they can copy or be more like this author or more like that author but to understand what people are responding to i tell people read the goodreads reviews read amazon reviews read reviews wherever reviews can be found from real readers in addition to reviewers to see what people like or don't like about books and and i think again you can see people really responding to the big feelings the big emotions the big love story. And that feels like the thing to replicate, not copy this plot, but sort of try to evoke the same emotion. Right. That's interesting because there are no original stories, but we need to make the not original story unique. So that tricky balance of, yeah. I need to have comp, like we need to have comp. When Katie Hoffman queried you, was querying the keystone combination to you, did he explain the comps or no? I would have to go back and look at the query, but I mean, definitely Casey McQuiston was listed as a comp. Mm-hmm. And he actually might have had Ted Lasso too. If you forgive me for a moment, I will find it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, yes. So he, I thought was was great in that he said the close single POV third person present narration and comedic voice of a Casey McQuiston novel. Also, the rivals turned lovers of red, white, and royal blue. We are found family of one last stop. It was Casey McQuiston's other uh, mm-hmm. adult book. Mm-hmm. 
the adult trans character has been out for years, representation, and we're technically competing, but oh no, I like you, energy. I'm Anita Kelly's Love and Other Disasters. The casual but narratively vital representation of disabilities often found in Tolly and Hibbert novels. That was, that's a great way to describe the comps. And I like that it's more specific than just the voice of Casey McQuiston. There is detail behind it. So the specificity sets up expectations so that when you read the manuscript, you can confirm if those expectations are fulfilled or not. Absolutely. And frankly, comps are so useful when you're looking for agents because even though often authors don't get their comps spot on, it's still useful for agents to think, to know, again, where the authors see themselves. Mm -hmm. You may see yourself as, you know, Lauren Groff. Someone else might see you as more of a, a Straub. Those are not that different. But, you know, but, but I think it's still useful for you to dip through self-define mm -hmm. so we can figure out kind of, again, what, what who you want to be, what your goals are, what your trying to do. Absolutely. And figuring out those goals and the whys behind those goals seems essential to figuring out where you want to be in the market and as a career in a relationship with you. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That was a rom-com. Now you've mentioned lessons in chemistry and I have been chomping at the bit to, to talk about this one with someone. So I'm excited. I loved it. I oh my God. I didn't so do it, but I thought it was fantastic. So good. This is Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. It is on the New York Times bestseller and it's being well received in a lot of areas. And I gobbled it up personally. I just loved, loved, loved the story. It's another interesting one because I would probably call it upmarket. What would you call it? I would call it upmarket. Yeah, okay. that's a great example of a book that some people might call that literary fiction. Some mm -hmm. people call that women's fiction, which is hate. People might call that upmarket fiction. These things are very fluid. I'm going to go into women's fiction because you said that you just hate that term. And I know that that is a big conversation that happens even with women's fiction writers. Why would someone pick something as women's fiction versus upmarket fiction? Or is there crossover when someone is querying you, trying to figure out what they are? And I'm going to say it doesn't matter, but these terms are interchangeable. I hate women's fiction because I don't like implying that fiction is for one gender or another. It's fiction that could be enjoyed by men as well. I mean, if you look at the Gabrielle Zevin book I mentioned earlier, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, that's a book about video gamers. I know many men who have loved that book. And so to define that as women's fiction feels just completely like putting it into this tiny box that doesn't need to exist. But just last week, Publishers Marketplace, which is the industry website that, that we all use to kind of announce book deals and look up book deals, just announced last week they were getting rid of the category of women's fiction. Oh, interesting. I think it's a huge step forward. Because of the same argument that you're yes. having, right? Wow, that's it, that's big news. Yeah, it's great news. It's about time, right? right? But And actually, this is completely anecdotal, but when we were announcing this book deal for the TCL combination, Katie Hoffman's book, they originally put it in the kind of romance slash women's fiction category right. and i wrote to them and i said we don't want to be considered women's fiction put it in as a debut which it is right. and they changed it you know to give them credit this isn't to like bag on public marketplace no yeah it's doing the right thing but it was for this reason why so I, I like to think that we were part of the change and i mean it's important to advocate for where you want to be placed because ultimately where your place speaks to your target readership and you don't want to be limited to exactly one type of readership with this yeah i mean I love that you advocated for your author. It was important to him and it was important to me for the same reason it was important to him. He is someone who has fought for his whole life 
yeah. to be defined the way he wants to be defined. So it's it, this applies to him. I think it's sort of more than than most. Yes, I'm excited for that one. 2023 is that right? 2024. 2024. Yeah. Okay. It in spring to kind of be like you know opening day of of baseball season, and wanted a lot of time to set it up. So smart, it's smart place. Forever, but it'll be here before we know. So true. Back to lessons in chemistry. Just kind of backtrack a little bit. That story in general is really interesting because there is a lot of emotional journey in there. It deals a lot with Elizabeth Sott and her experience as a woman chemist in the 60s and what she experienced. But there is plot that generates agency in the story. And some of it deals with love stories. Some of it deals with career stories. Some of it deals with, you know, being a mother and relationships with other women. How do you think you recommend or what do you like to look for specifically in stories when they are very emotionally driven? What keeps the story moving forward? I think there are a lot of things that can do that. So I don't think there's one way, but I will tell you my favorite way, which are secrets, secrets and reveals. I think that anytime a character is keeping a secret from another character and or from the reader, it hooks the reader because the reader wants to know either what's the secret or if the reader knows the secret, they want to know where the other character is going to find out. Mm-hmm. And figuring out the timing of secrets and reveals, I think, is one of the hardest plotting things to do. Mm-hmm. But it is, it can be just absolutely genius in order to do exactly what you said and move the narrative forward. Do you think that the secret or the main secret has to appear on page one or oh, the first chapter? No, okay. no, no, absolutely not. You know, I, I represent in the U.S. fantastic author Rosie Walsh, whose first book was Ghosted, and her second book was was published this year. It was called Love of My Life. And Rosie's absolutely brilliant in knowing when to tease a secret and then when to reveal the truth. And it's like this incredible braided narrative. And both of her books, you know, are sort of dispensable for that reason because people are keeping secrets in her second book. You know, the the opening, it's not on page one, but the beginning is this couple in bed and the man thinks, you know, he talks about how much he loves Swipe and how he knows everything about her. And then the last line of that first chapter is when he finds out he knows nothing about her, it will break him. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, right away, we're like, what, what secrets are you finding? I'm just keeping a ton of secrets. Mm-hmm. And why? But the book is also an incredible love story. It has some incredible nature writing in it because one of the characters is a biologist. It's working on so many levels. So I think I love the way secrets and reveals can plot a book, but I think that you can have a super commercial book where it's all about the secrets and reveals or the secrets and reveals can be underpinning all of this other emotional work. I like both of those types of books. It doesn't have to be super commercial to have secrets and to have those secrets really work to propel the story forward. Absolutely. What do you think the secrets are in Lessons in Chemistry? Oh, gosh. It's been a while since I've read it. I mean, I feel like she was sexually assaulted, right? Sorry, that's a spoiler. But she is keeping that a secret from other people in her life. Mm-hmm. That when the reader doesn't learn about that assault until well into the book. But we're given hints that something bad happened to her. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example of a way that with those hints, we're helped to think, okay, what's going to happen? What happened? What happened? We know something happened with her. We know she mm-hmm. left this position for some reason. And when we figure that out, we feel kind of rewarded that we've hung in to find out that. Perhaps 
you can look at it as this way of secrets can either be a secret that the reader is waiting to discover and it's something that we we're waiting to explore or we could see why someone is the way that they become or the way that they end because of and that works in the nature of a secret i think again it's a broad term and i just love i think that one thing i'm working on with all my authors is confidence in withholding things from the reader. Okay. Because I think that a lot of my authors themselves are very open people and it's like they worry almost a little bit confusing if they don't kind of fill in all the blame in the beginning. And I'm trying to gently explain that actually it's not frustrating as a reader to read something that ends with, if he only knew what she'd really gone through three years ago, he would run away. It's like, No, yeah, it's confusing. We don't know what she went through three years ago, but we want to find out. And so therefore we're going to keep reading. That's figuring out what to withhold and when, and then when to reveal it. Again, it's very hard, but it's sort of the whole key to a lot of these books. Yeah. I love that you can have developing secrets throughout the plot. It doesn't have to be one secret at one time for a certain amount of time. I think every character should have some sort of secret from another character or the reader, something that they're not totally revealing. Are secrets desirable, cross, commercial, upmarket, and be treats? I think so. Yes, absolutely. And probably literary fiction too, although again, I do a lot less of that. But I just think anything, I think secrets propel the narrative forward and therefore they're always desirable. For sure. I think about something like, I love the Broadway musical Hamilton. I don't know if you've seen Hamilton. Yeah. Who doesn't love Hamilton, right? So the best. So something like Hamilton, I remember either reading or listening to Lin-Manuel talk about it's different because Aaron Burr opens saying he's the man who killed him. So yeah. we, and it's history, right? So we also know the ending, like that's actually what captivated Lin-Manuel in the beginning to writing it because he he picked up um, Robert Chernow's book because he knew that it was going to have a good ending. So the question almost becomes, well, how do you get to a place of being killed in a duel? So it's that kind of propose you forward. And then other times we don't know all the information, which speaks a lot to life and understanding people, why they behave, how they move forward. We just never know the whole story. Exactly. That can impact character motivation. And that's a great example. I love that you use that example because I think that can be a really fun structure. A lot of books begin with a death. A lot of thrillers begin that way. And think about like Lucy Foley's The Guest List begins with, we know someone's going to die. We don't know who, we don't know how. So that Right away, we've got to find out. Yeah. But in Hamilton, you also have this, you know, sort of secret that Angelica Schuyler is keeping that she sort of secretly yearns for him. And that we are also kind of invested in is that mm-hmm. discovered, the sister relationship. There's a lot going on there. It's so interesting because when you have the reader, it's like there's this tricky balance of the reader and how much information the reader knows to create suspense and how much the reader can't know to create suspense, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think that, again, I think readers are much more willing to be kept in the dark as long as it pays off at the end. The worst thing a writer could do, an author could do is they dangle a secret that then doesn't really pay off. It's like, mm. it turns out that the cat did it. You know, it's like, no one wants that book. No one wants the murder that was actually the cat. At least I don't. Don't come at me with your great cat murder book. Maybe there's some great ones out there. But I think as long as it pays off at the end, they are willing to be kept in the dark mm. or, or given little clues, but not given the whole, the whole information. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for as a reader. I want to figure out, hey, what made you who you are and what you're doing and the motivation. Lessons in chemistry is interesting because I believe, if I remember this correctly, I 
read it not too recently ago, but still has some time. The first chapter, I believe, opens up with kind of after she has been the celebrity chef. Yes, I think she's already on TV in the beginning. But most of the book is not that. Right. So it's interesting because it's like, here it is. Even the, I just remember a line about the president saying that she really knows what she's doing. So we know that she's going to work up to this moment, but we don't know how she gets there. And a lot of her life experiences are what bring her to that. Well, all of her life experiences are what bring her to that. And I think that's a great, I mean, that's a really common structure. If you look mm-hmm. at Carly Fortune's book, Every Other Summer, which, or Every Summer After, excuse me, which is a book on the bestseller list now. And it it opens in the, the present day. And we know that the main character had a relationship with this guy, but that they've fallen out and haven't spoken in years. And she gets a call. This is in chapter one, so it's not a spoiler, that his mother has passed away and is invited to the funeral. And then we flash back to mm-hmm. that meeting as kids. And so it's like, we know they end up in this not great place, but we've got to find out how they got there. And I think mm-hmm. what that does is serve up the stakes of, that past narrative. If we didn't have that beginning part, we would see them meeting as kids and think, okay, yeah, I kind of know it, want to know what's going to happen, but I don't understand why this relationship is so meaningful. But by giving that little hint of of the contemporary storyline, we're right away sort of invested and understand the big stakes. And mm-hmm. I think that's a great structure. It's one I advocate all the time. I have a writer, I'm working with a writer right now, and I don't want to give too much too away of her book because I know she does it. She wouldn't want that, but her book is also kind of takes place over the course of many years and it jumps back and forth in time. And one of my first notes to her was like, we've got to start with the present. So when we meet these characters, the first time they meet, again, we have like that sense of stakes. Sure. And up to a setting to ground you in the character and where they are. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we are nearing the end of the podcast and you've shared so much great advice. And I just thank you so much for your time. I do like to do a lightning three, three quick questions at the end of the podcast. You do your best to answer it in one sentence. If you don't, it's okay. But do your best to answer it in one question. Are you ready for the round? I think so. All right. So my first question for you is that you have shared a love for unforgettable characters. And I'm very curious, who is one character that you consider unforgettable and why did they stick with you so much? I'm going to name the first one that pops into my head, which is I represent a wonderful author, Carol Lovering. She has three books published. Most recently, Can't Look Away, which came out in June. Her first book, the debut that I first, her first book that I read was called Tell Me Lies. And it's on my mind right now because it's about to be a Hulu show in September. And I just watched the first five episodes and I thought they were fantastic. And I'm so excited for the whole world to be able to watch this brilliant show. That book is about a toxic relationship that mostly takes place in college. And she, somewhat unusually, I would say, goes back and forth between the perspective of the the woman in the relationship, who is the main character, but also with the man, who is the true kind of bad boyfriend. Mm. And I thought it was so brilliant how she gets into his head and and makes him almost a sympathetic character even when he's a total villain his name is steven and i'm proud to say that i helped come up with his name so he's maybe very close to my heart but he is just an unforgettable character he's so he's bad but you almost want to root for him and she just did a fantastic job of that character awesome great example and all of these questions that I'm asking, everything that is Allison sharing, this is to the listeners. 
good comps for you if you want to query hers. Absolutely. <laughs> you paying attention, go check out these stories. For my second question for you, you're looking for smart beach reads. And we mentioned this. You look, you want those smart beach reads. You want more beach reads. What is one of your favorite smart beach reads that you've read of late? And why did it stick with you so much? Well, I have to give a shout out to my absolute favorite queen of the beach read author, Alan Hildebrand. I am, I like to say I'm Ellen's biggest fan. I know I have quite a bit of competition for that, but I have read <laughs> every single one of her books multiple times i would say her newest book at hotel nantucket and it's mm -hmm. fantastic but her book 28 summers which came out right i read it i read the galley lucky enough to read it early it came out came out the summer of, of 2020 and mm -hmm. i read it literally the weekend before i went into lockdown mm -hmm. and it, it is about a woman who escaped i'm sorry she, she's living in new york city she inherited from a cottage on nantucket where all of ellen's books are set and decides to kind of Changed her whole life, moved to Nantucket, become a high school English teacher. And then she stays there and the book follows her over the course of 28 summers, which mm. love a book over the course of time. I read this book, I believe it was March 10th, 2020. After I read it, I went and saw a movie with two friends. It was the last movie I saw in the theater. I have not seen a movie in the theater since. And I was telling them how much I loved it. And I said, do you think I should quit my job, leave New York City, move to a cottage in Nantucket? become an English teacher. And three days later, I was sent home from my office and I left the city and moved upstate. It affected me. Let's put it yeah. that way. And yeah. I think Ellen is fantastic. Great with secrets and reveals. Great character development and backstory. She is the queen for a reason. Yes. Yes. Very much so. I don't think I've actually read that one. So oh, I forgot. I yes. Right. Well, there you go. See, now I'm just going to add it to my list and it's going to shoot right up there because I've got a <laughs> referral for it. So that's great. You know, sidebar note, have you ever, just because I also love stories throughout time, I just, they're hard to write and they are wonderful when you master them. I love Jennifer Weiner's Mrs. Everything. Have you ever read Mrs. Absolutely. Everything? I love that book. I love her. I was going to use her as a great example of yeah. her, her new book, which I'm terrible because I mix them up because they all have summer in the title, but it's mm -hmm. called The Summer Place or something. Anyway, yeah. great with secrets and revealed. Yeah, that's great. Do you have to read her last year's book to read that one? No, no they're kind of loosely connected, but they're, it's not a sequel. Yeah, she's great. She's a strong, strong writer. Yeah, okay, awesome. So we've talked a lot about specific books that you like. We've talked a lot about comps that are great. I'm hoping that the, you know listeners are listening to this and they're chomping at the bit to get their query letter to you, especially if their comp is one that you. Yeah, I think it's going to bring a lot of attention your way. I think that you've done a great job. My last question to you is, as you are an agent that focuses on commercial upmarket and beach reads, what makes you unique? as a literary agent and why do you want specifically these writers to query you and partner with them? I think that I know this corner of the market as well as anyone can. I, I won't go as far as say I know it better than anyone else, but I know it as well as it could possibly be known. I read every author in this space. I study the bestseller list. I study the TikTok recommendations. I study reviews and I really try to figure out what readers are looking for. My sort of joke is I can channel this kind of reader really well because I am that kind of reader. I love these books. I'm not doing this kind of work because I think it's best-selling, although it obviously can be, but I'm doing it because I genuinely love these books and these stories. That's where my heart is. This is what I would do no matter what. 
I think that's a big one. And I also think I love, because I read so much in this category and I know it's kind of so well, I think I'm really good at helping authors see the big picture and come up with those secrets and those twists and those great character backstories that will set the book above the other. Really have read every version of it. I can come up with those ideas and I love brainstorming with authors and I love idea generation with authors. And I'm sure other agents do that, but that is something I really love to do. Well, that's really beautiful. Both those reasons. It's so important, at least in if I were querying you, I would want my agent to also love the stories that she was representing. So I think that's huge. Having passion as well as a mindset of how the business works. That's what we're always looking for, fusing those two together. And then the idea also of the collaborative approach. That's a huge reason of why Trellis Literary Management is so amazing because there is that great focus of collaborative. Yes, and that's absolutely great. what we're going for. We really, we really mean it. We really value it. It's been so rewarding. We went into it hoping that that spirit would remain, but I don't even think we could have dreamed how well it would work. And we talk about everything together as a group, each other out, and we're truly not competitive in a way that, frankly, I've experienced in other agencies, and it's been amazing. I love it. I love that you support one another. I think through that support, great stories are being sold and put in the hands of readers. And that is a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful gift to the world. So thank you so much for your work and thank you so much for your passion. And I continually look forward to supporting your career and I hope so many clients come your way. Thank you so much. I so appreciate your support and this has been really fun. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation on LitMatch. You can learn more about Allison, Trellis Literary Management, and how to query Allison in the show notes. I really love today's conversation and I can't wait to bring you more discussions with literary agents along with other episodes on how to strengthen your manuscript. As always, I love to connect with my listeners and I want to hear from you about what's stumping you in the submission or writing process. What kind of information do you want to learn about so that both the writing and submission process become not only possible, but fun? If you have something on your radar, I'd love to hear about it. Please email me at Perry at gmail.com. I do take your emails seriously and will do my best to answer everyone who reaches out. Oh, and one last thing. If you're enjoying LitMatch and would like to support the show, I genuinely would appreciate if you could rate and review the show. I love to read these reviews. They continually motivate me to produce more content that will help you. And they also help signal to iTunes that this show matters. This means that I can reach more writers like you who want to learn more about writing, publishing, and literary agents. Until next time, happy writing. Persevere if you're querying and never give up on yourself. You can find the best literary agent for your business and writing career. And I can't wait to celebrate your book when it comes out.